The reading is taken from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. <clears throat> and it can be found on page 968 in the Church Bibles. St. Matthew, chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rosemary. Okay, so good morning again, everyone. I hope you're all well. Thank you for your special welcome to me as I come back to St. Paul's. Now, I must admit, I do take it as a positive sign that you've chosen to throw a party on the Sunday I come back rather on the f than the first Sunday of my sabbatical. So that's encouraging. Um, also, just so I'm feeling slightly under the weather myself as well, so I'm aiming to keep this sermon quite short, which is good news for me and good news for you. And some of you have asked what my sabbatical was like. Well, I had lots of fun. Uh, so I did a bit of traveling. We went, as a family, went to Spain. Kate and I went to Malta. We were due to travel with Thomas Cook, 
and in the morning that they folded, so that was a challenge, but we actually uh, got an easy jet flight uh, very early the next day, and we enjoyed that. Uh, we've been to Lancashire, where it was actually as hot as it, as it was in Malta, believe it or not, in August, uh, and I've been up to Durham as well to uh, see one of my mentors, which was great. So we've had a good time, I've had a good time, it's been lovely resting, lo- lovely listening to God, lovely reading Uh, about culture, which is our new sermon series. You can see it on the screen, Never Changing Gospel in an Ever-Changing World. That's our strapline. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, right through with a break for Christmas until just before Easter. And it's a great opportunity for us. I really really hope that this will equip us to engage with the people and the culture around us, including our family, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours. And I think we're all going to be challenged by it. I, myself, am really looking forward to the reading I will have to do around the particular topics that we look at each week. And um, you'll see, hopefully, evidence uh, as, the sermon, as the sermon series goes on of some of that reading that I've done. Okay, so, um, engaging with culture is the sermon title today. And I thought it would be nice just to turn to your neighbour and just share for a minute or so, how does that title, Engaging with Culture, make you feel? Do you feel scared or confident, interested or bored, or inadequate or equipped, or somewhere in between? Okay, so just turn to your neighbour and share how that topic feels to you. Let me bring you, you back together. Let's, have a, let's a, have a quick show of hands. Who, who found themselves feeling on balance, more scared than confident, more uh, inadequate than equipped? Okay, well, I'm one of them. Quite a few, okay. You might not want to put your hand up for the others, but hopefully uh, there is a lot of excitement in the room as well. And maybe confidence that even if we haven't... Uh, thus far necessarily sort of really prepared ourselves for engaging with culture. We've got the opportunity now over the next few months, and I think it's going to really help us as a church. So I myself am definitely someone who finds this difficult. 
And one of the reasons why I think many of us find it difficult is that we get drawn into a Christian bubble, don't we? As we prioritize sometimes friendships with other believers over others. And of course, there's nothing wrong with friendships with other believers. You know, it's a wonderful thing and we can really encourage each other. But we clearly need a balance. A Christian community that withdraws into itself won't have the impact for the kingdom that God would love it to have. And second, we may lack confidence, for it's not easy being a Christian in an increasingly secularized country today. And we might prefer to keep a low profile and avoid discussions on on difficult or sensitive or divisive topics, and there's plenty of those. I'm sure we all agree. And we don't, want, we don't want to put ourselves in an awkward situation. We don't want to be in a situation where we feel unprepared. So we don't take the risk of engaging with our culture. Or third, we might be new to Christianity, and I'm sure there are some in that situation today or still on a journey of exploring it. And of course, it takes a time to really uh, develop a Christian perspective on, on everything. And, th- and that's just normal. Or fourth, Because the Bible actually warns us that we're in a spiritual battle in which Satan's agenda must be to discourage, to distract, and to divert us from any spiritual impact for good that we can have on others. And to be honest, I'd be surprised if, in the light of that, there isn't anyone here who doesn't relate to at least two of those factors. But today, and through the series we're going to be looking at, we're going to do something about it. We're going to reflect on the culture out there to help shape our culture in here, helping us all feel more confident about what we believe and why we believe it. And I believe, therefore, following Peter's command in his letter, that we would always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have. So that's why we're doing this series, and it's all about discipleship appropriately starting with what is effectively Jesus' inaugural sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, given to his newly chosen first disciples as he starts to prepare them for their roles. And in my inaugural talk of the sermon series, I've got three simple things I want to share with us uh, about engaging with culture, um, starting with this one. It's about going with the flow. I don't think we should, lead, uh, we should read too much significance into the fact that the Christian there seems to be somewhat fatter than the rest of the fish, but it, it does capture that sense, doesn't it? That actually we're going in a different direction. We might feel a bit odd. We might be a bit self-conscious. We might bump into people along the way. And of course we don't find that easy. I thought a childhood of supporting West Ham, living in the catchment area of Tottenham and Arsenal, would have prepared me for it. But I still don't think it has adequately. I still find myself wanting to fit in. But let's acknowledge here, right at the outset, that Jesus sees a willingness to be different, to be absolutely fundamental to Christian discipleship. Though on the plus side, men, unlike the Old Testament people of God, at least we don't have to be circumcised. And we have to be different, because at its heart, the Christian life is counter-cultural, especially in the rapidly secularizing culture that we inhabit today. Our passage from the start of the Sermon on the Mount makes that obvious, doesn't it? For in these Beatitudes, Jesus attaches a promise of blessing to a warning about persecution 
hardly the greatest sales pitch in motivating his new recruits. Yet persecution, insults, and the risk of false accusations that are mentioned there are actually fundamental to his message, as of course they would be reality for those disciples years down the road. Yet this is not suffering or martyrdom simply for the sake of it. For Jesus gives his reasons for his warning and the metaphors that follow. For discipleship does not find its purpose in isolation from the rest of society. Rather, it's defined in terms of its impact. Just as salt was essential for flavor and for preserving the food of a first century Palestinian chef, so his followers would undeniably help and bless and be for the good of the world around them. And so given this, failure to be sufficiently salty was pointless, as the light metaphor that followed made clear. Just as a town on a hill can't be hidden, a lamp shining under a bowl is ridiculous. Our discipleship is meant to be visible to others, because we are the light of the world, just as we are also Jesus tells us the salt of the earth. So as we begin this series on culture, we need to take heed. The Christian faith is not meant to be private, for it is in its very purpose something to be seen. So we shouldn't fear hostility or mockery or abuse even when we put our head above the parapet. That's not to say it always happens. Of course it doesn't. But we shouldn't fear it. Because it's evidence of the gospel simply doing its work. The word gospel simply means good news. And I think we need to just recognize that as God's shot window to the world that we actually are as Christians, we're called to be distinctive and we're called to be prophetic, though always with gentleness and respect. And so Jesus concludes in verse 16 of the passage, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Or as the parable of the sower made clear, there will always be a range of reactions to us as Christians and to the word of God as we share that good news with others in word or in example. But only one category of seed in the parable of the sower actually brought a harvest. Rejection and and those seeds leading to nothing fruitful is just normal. We should expect the no's as well as the yeses, as Michael Harvey reminded us a year or two ago. So that's our first principle of engaging with culture. Our faith should, by nature, be challenging to others. Because if we wear our faith openly, well, then they are confronted with the reality of God's claim on our lives and therefore by implication of his claim upon theirs. For it challenges them, and it convicts them, and also encourages them and inspires them. But in doing so, it will provoke a decision, if not immediately, a little bit down the road. Will they too respond to the opportunity that it gives them to find forgiveness and purpose and peace in their lives? We're meant to be prophetic. We're meant to be God's window to the world. Which leads on to our second principle, that the gospel is unbelievably 
good news. And we know that, don't we? But we need to be reminded of it. And that's why Jesus actually gives us all these beatitudes. He wants his disciples to begin to comprehend how incredible, how wonderful the blessings that he gives us actually are. He does it through eight wonderful promises of blessing, all of which flow from a right heart towards God. But I don't think the NIV translation, actually, that that we have is enormously helpful, at least in one respect. For in English, they read as misfortunes, don't they? To be poor, to hunger, to mourn. But they need to be interpreted positively. For they present to us three synonyms synonyms, of spiritual humility, in the light of which those wonderful promises make much more sense. For just as John the Baptist brought a message of repentance, so Jesus commands reverence and piety here. For we're responding to the God of the universe who made us, who loves us, our creator, and yet who offers us forgiveness and joy. Just remind yourselves how that would sound to someone who hasn't heard that before. And yet we know too that the condition that we can receive it, is that we acknowledge his holiness alongside uh, alongside our own lack of holiness, our own selfishness, and our own addiction, if you like, to sin. And it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector all over again, isn't it? The former thought that he had earned God's acceptance with his legalism and with his rambling long prayers. But the truth was anything but That's what Jesus was saying with that shocking parable delivered to an audience of Pharisees and people that they looked down upon. Rather, Jesus was saying it was the tax collector who went home forgiven, for he recognized his own sin and his own need of forgiveness. So seen in this way, poor in spirit in the Beatitudes simply means humility, spiritually speaking. And mourning is is conviction of sin. Meekness can be interpreted similarly, whilst hungering and thirsting for righteousness is clearly for a life that pleases God, not hungering and thirsting for water and for food. So in this context, then, the rest of the Beatitudes are more straightforward, including the persecution that we've already discussed. And then Jesus finishes with what is surely an astonishing parallel Concluding like this, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets that, of course, all Jewish people so revered. What was the moral of the story then? That yes, persecution is never likely to be pleasant. Not for anyone. But you're in the most esteemed of company When it comes, the company of the prophets, endure it and you will reap all the benefits, if not in this life, certainly in the one to come. Which leads me on then to my final principle, which you can see in the next slide. That we really do need to engage with our secular culture, even if the principles behind it are so different to our own. Now, to be truthful, our Bible reading that we heard doesn't actually shed that much light on this. 
but we do um, have the opportunity to look at other passages too. And there wasn't time to read Acts 17 uh, when we had the readings, but I just want to talk a bit about it now, because it's the favorite passage of many a missionary. And in it we see Paul arriving in Athens, which was still the philosophical melting pot of the known world then. Now you probably know, if you know your history, that by then the Greek Empire was long forgotten, its status usurped by Rome. But the great Greek philosophers had certainly not been forgotten. Greek was still the language of the educated classes, including for the Romans at this stage. And that's why the New Testament, if you didn't know, is actually written in Greek. And it's why in Athens, intellectual debate still thrived. So in Athens, we see Paul in Acts 17 giving a great example of engaging with the culture that he finds. Sent there for his own safety, waiting for Timothy and Silas. The passage tells us how he used his time. So I'll read some of that to you. Having looked round the city, we read that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul is clearly putting himself about isn't he? And we have an inroad here into his heart and how he sees the kingdom of God growing uh, through his own life. And it was when he was in the marketplace that he caught the attention of some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I'm not going to ask you exactly what an Epicurean philosopher is, but he began to debate with them And to cut a long story short, they then took him to the meeting of the Areopagus, which I think is the first century version of the Oxford or Cambridge Union debating societies. The Areopagus was an intimidating place to go. There were people there, I think, every day debating the issues of the day. Uh, However they found time to do that, I don't know. And so Paul got up and said to them this, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. God did this, Paul continues, that they might seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. What they must have thought as he talks about the possibility of knowing this unknown God. And he continues, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he even quotes their prophets and says, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill like the Greeks as so many other pagan societies thought that God did. In the past, he continued, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, in this era of the good news of Jesus, he commands all people everywhere 
to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. The reaction that they gave, it says some of them sneered. Some of them listened. Some of them made fun. But some of them said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And the conclusion of the story wonderfully is this. Some of the people became followers of Paul and Jesus and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus himself, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Now compare it to other stories in Acts. We realize that the number of converts were not as many as the place he'd just been or the place that he was going next. But the point is, Paul went to the hardest places and engaged with what he found. He wasn't saying everything that you do, everything that you think about, your poems, your songs, it's all useless, it's all offensive to God. Rather, he affirmed them in their searching. He picked up on their cultural forms and he used that opportunity to show them that I can tell you about the God that you're looking for. The God who fulfills the things your culture search for. The God that you can celebrate as much as I can. I can tell you that God loves you and that you can know him. And one day you can be with him forever. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? What must it have been like after that? Few of us have a calling like Paul. I think we're glad about that. But the application of the passage is clear. If we want to help those who are searching for God, we need to meet them where they're at. And in our case, that means engaging with their culture in the town and in the countryside and throughout our culture and our country of Great Britain today. And let's face it, as we live in Britain, it's a bit of an easier task for us than it was for Paul who perhaps had never been to Athens in his life. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us? It means things like watching television or films that people are watching, reading the same books and articles, following the same news stories, listening to the same songs, and taking the same interest in the things that our children or our grandchildren are watching or talking about as well. Now, someone from the 9 o'clock service came up to me and said, I loved your sermon. There was just one thing I didn't agree with which is that surely we're not meant to watch all the rubbish that we find on television. And I said, no, of course we're not. You know, watch the good stuff. Or do this, read the television commentary that you get in newspapers. And in fact, Christianity magazine, if you've ever uh, had a look at that, every issue, it has a page in which it, it talks about an aspect of contemporary culture. We don't have to spend much time immersing ourselves in what's going on around us. We don't have to watch it all. We simply need to be canny and we simply need to use the work that others have done. And especially for our children and grandchildren, we need to engage. That stuff is washing over them. It's influencing them. And if we watch it as well sometimes, well, we can talk about it with them and we can see them learning from it positive lessons rather than negative ones, which they're for certain going to pick up in other places. So... The Bible tells us we're not of this world. We, yes, we are citizens of heaven, but we are meant to be in the world, which means not ignoring it, 
but engaging with it. Now, of course, we can easily make the case that many of these programs, these books or songs, are not as edifying as Christian ones or or other things that we might choose to read. But that's not the point. It's about earning the right to be part of the conversation with others, whether it's over dinner, in the office, the pub, the coffee shop, or the school gate. And thus giving ourselves the opportunity to help our children and our grandchildren process and respond safely and constructively to all of the things that they absorb day after day. And let's face it, it's hardly the most arduous of tasks to set ourselves, is it? You know, we might even enjoy it, watching a little bit more television, reading a little bit more of the newspaper, or reading a few more secular novels. And if it's backed up by prayer, we can be so much more confident that it will in some way bear fruit. And in my view, it's just as constructive an exercise as whatever more explicitly Christian activities we might otherwise have been pursuing. Now, I suspect you agree with me. I'm probably preaching to the converted. But let's be honest. We fall short on this so often. Let's take the opportunity to make sure how we spend our time We see it through the lens of God's heart and God's mission and his desire for the kingdom of God to reach every corner of our world. And I want to make clear this too. I'm definitely preaching to myself in this. In fact, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this sermon series is it will force me to think about and read these things. And I'm really looking forward to the task and whatever connections it will help me to make. For yes, praying, connecting and growing are our vision priorities and well done if you've remembered those while I've been away. But I hope I've also convinced you that the application of these priorities includes praying for, connecting with and growing in our understanding of the things people outside the church are engaging with because we value them enough to want to establish common ground. I need to finish, and I want to do so with a final challenge. God has placed us in this culture, in the situations we find ourselves in, for a reason. The reason is not so we would avoid the opportunities it presents. And so, yes, discipleship and holy living does, of course, include scripture and good Christian principles growing us and molding us. But if we don't equally keep in touch with the secular culture around us, we will be potentially wasting golden opportunities to connect with and influence our not yet Christian colleagues, family or friends. That's where I want to leave us. Let's welcome the potential this new sermon series gives us by reflecting on topics as varied as truth, identity and influence, faith and politics, social media and the filtering of news, stress and security, culture and commitment, healthy relationships, Christ and community, addictions and freedom, purpose and pleasure, youth culture, sex and sexuality, the right to die, freedom and finance, fear and family, and whatever other suggestions you want to make, especially for next term. With a final concluding sermon, as we head into Easter, on the culture that we at St. Paul's want then to carry into the world. I hope you're excited. I certainly are.
And I certainly am, and I think the whole staff team is. What a great opportunity. And I pray that each of us will be challenged and equipped through it to bear great fruit. Amen. Now, I'd love just to pray for us.